0: Welcome to the Beehive Capital Show. I'm Douglas Obusu. As always, I'm here with the Beehive Capital Management Team. On the Beehive Capital Show, we provide a medium for the startup ecosystem's most respected and trusted leaders to share their insight so entrepreneurs and investors can flourish even during these trying times. Rich Osborne joins us today. He is the president of the strategic investment division of TELUS, a Canadian communications company. The division name is TELUS Ventures. Prior to TELUS, Rich was general partner at Recap Health, investing in digital health opportunities. Rich, welcome to the Beehive Capital Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Most definitely. Now, I did give a brief introduction. bio as to your background, but I would love to actually hear your role at TELUS Ventures and what the activities consist of.
1: Sure. So um, I'm the president uh, of a business unit at TELUS called TELUS Ventures, and we're the uh, strategic investment uh, division of TELUS. And hopefully, most people know who Telus is, but it's a uh, you know large Canadian communications company involved in all sorts of uh, communications-related you know data, internet, wireless, you name it. What people may not know though is we're also the country's largest digital health vendor, and we have assets and uh, investments in areas like ag tech, IoT, smart cities, connected consumer, AI, uh, and the like. And so my team sources, uh, structures, and leads those investments.
0: Very interesting. And I would love to actually get further into that and how the strategic goals of Telus tie into the targets of investments that you do, uh, come by now, prior to that, I would love to hear what you were doing prior to being engaged with Telus. Sure.
1: Uh, So, I've been at TELUS now uh, four years. Uh, And prior to that, I was a private GP, general partner in a venture capital fund that invested in Canada and the US. It was called Recap Health Ventures. And we invested, as the name implies, in in health, mostly digital health, uh, EMR software, uh, imaging software, uh, health and wellness opportunities. And we had quite a lot of success. And then prior to that, I was in the private equity business doing leveraged buyouts based here in Vancouver. And then way back, I was actually an entrepreneur in the software field mm-hmm. in um, a local company here called Multiactive, and the product was called Maximizer. For those of you old enough to remember that product, you probably <laughs> don't know this as Well, done this. Well, <laughs> it, it,
0: it is interesting that it seems that you've actually experienced the multiple Life cycles of adventure and investing, right? Like you've been uh, investing in mature companies, early stage companies, seed companies on the corporate side. That's quite a bit of experience that you have behind you.
1: Yeah, thanks. I mean, I'd like to think it helps me make better investment decisions. And frankly, I think what it really does is give me better empathy for the entrepreneur. You know, any venture capitalist that has not raised money, him or herself, I think is at a real disadvantage. I mean, it is a humbling, you know, soul destroying uh, ego mitigating uh, exercise to go out and to ask people for money and to have them, you know, ask all these tough questions and push and prod and poke like we all do. So I've done that as an entrepreneur, I've done that, you know, as a fund manager. Uh, And then, as you say, I've done early stage companies to later stage companies. I've done some M&A from the buy side as a a private equity guy where we bought controlling positions in companies. And we work closely with our counterparts at Telus around M&A and occasionally buying some of the very companies that we've invested in as Telus Ventures. So, yeah, I'd like to think it helps me both with the empathy, but also just to make better decisions and also to help those companies post investment, you know, run their businesses with some of those strategic questions in mind.
0: Most definitely. And I'm actually interested in hearing, as a founder, you're you're raising capital, as a um, VC or a GP, you're raising capital in the form of a fund. As a corporate, I believe that there are varying ways that the venture arm can be put together, correct? You could have a fund or you could invest off of the balance sheet. And I'm curious to hear a bit about the details and the implications of this and how maybe Telus goes about their venture arm.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I would describe it maybe as an evolutionary kind of process where most corporate venture arms start as an on balance sheet structure which is the way we're structured today. So what that means for those not familiar is that the parent company puts a pool of capital aside as it were, but it doesn't sit outside in a separate financial vehicle. And oftentimes what you'll see as these, you know, corporate venture capital groups mature and evolve for various reasons, that will start to move further and further outside the organization. So you would then, the next step oftentimes is to set up an uh, independent LP and an independent GP, which may or may not be owned by the parent company, but that the parent is still the largest, if not the only investor in that limited partnership. So that's kind of step maybe you know two. And then step three, again, lots of precedents for this, where the fund is independent, both the limited partner and the general partner, but there are other investors, other limited partners that come in besides the parent company to invest in that vehicle. And we've seen that time and time again, uh, groups in the CVC space like Nokia Growth, Alphabet, you know, Google Ventures has done the second step has talked about perhaps doing the third. Um, you could go down the list. There's, I think, last count we did probably 30 or 40 corporate venture capital groups that started on balance sheet and that have now migrated to you know that second or third uh, step in the value chain I just described.
0: I see. And then moving to the second step, are the other LPs typically other corporates that have similar strategic objectives that would find the same type of targets to be valuable? Or are these more so financial investors that um, have close relations with the corporate and would also like to get involved in that sector?
1: Yeah, great question. And I think, um, you know, you'd probably find a mix of both. So clearly where there's corporates who have similar strategic objectives and, you know, maybe have come to partner or invest alongside the GP uh, in the past and would say, look, this is a team we have confidence in, we've done deals together, we think they're good good folks. So that's certainly one of it. But also, I think what a lot of financial LPs are re- recognizing, so be they pension plans, or banks, or, you know, you name it, what they're realizing is that corporate venture capital groups actually bring a lot to the table, especially if they're thoughtful about the relationship on an ongoing basis with their parent, because really, what what does a startup need, right? It needs capital, it needs connections, it needs customers. And a good corporate investor can bring all three of those things. And it can bring them, you know, kind of in one simple, uh, hopefully, you know, easy package. And so as the world gets more uncertain, and as there's, you know, all of the well-documented challenges, be they COVID or economic, I think you're going to have much more of a recognition and much more of a flight of capital to proven GPs who have value creation capacity in very specific, considered ways. And I think corporate venture capital groups have proven that that sort of dual mission of you know, making financial returns because that's ultimately a big part of how we're measured, but also bringing strategic value to both the parent and the portfolio company, and that that kind of dual language, dual lens is critical. So I, I actually think there's going to be a lot more uh, capital flowing into these kinds of you know ex corporate venture capital vehicles going forward.
0: Now, I think that, or I would think that, there's also this sort of maybe tension that could arrive between a corporate uh, investor and a financial investor in the sense where um, maybe a corporate investor could want to see the venture or the target be acquired by them specifically, or they may want to pay a higher price for uh, the target to gain access to certain amounts of information and for whatever reason, this can maybe not sit well with the um, goals of the financial investor. If this sort of scenario ever does arise, could you maybe elaborate on this to maybe clarify?
1: Yeah, I mean it happens a lot less often than you'd think. I mean, it's a good question and it's one that we get all the time. And frankly, we get it whether we're inside or outside, you know, corporate venture capital, whether they're the first structure I talked about or the second or the third. So, it's a question that always comes up like, what are the ultimate motivations of the CBC, the Corporate Venture Capital Group, uh, given they've got a parent who may want to, as you say, buy something for you know, the best price possible? And the truth is that, you know, how I spend my day and how our team spends our time is, of course, we work with our business unit colleagues, and of course, we try and figure out what they need and then we go what we find it and then we try and do a deal with the target company. But the minute we make the investment, we are 100% focused on advocating for the best interests of that portfolio company because uh you know again, we are measured on the financial return generated by those investments. And so it doesn't serve our purpose to try and do a side deal or a you know preferential deal for our parent company over the objections of the management team, the other investors, et cetera. So that's the first thing. Philosophically, we're aligned with maximizing outcomes for the portfolio company. The second thing I'd say is, you know, there's other people in the company to keep us honest. I mean, the number of times that we are in a deal with no one else is zero. So there's always, and we try and invest with the top investors in the world. I mean, so, you know, we just did a deal with Kosla and Mark Benioff and, you know, those guys aren't dummies. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to be very motivated to get the best outcome for the company. They're not going to do a, a side deal with Telus Corporate just because we're an investor. So it's a mix of us and then other people keeping us honest and generally good uh, entrepreneurs, you know, are able to dictate deal terms and prices and deal structures that prevent those kinds of things from
0: happening. I see. So now speaking actually further into this, into some specific scenarios, there's this concept that always comes up in terms of right of first refusal, right? And the implications of this going forward. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are on essentially what you prefer right of first refusal or maybe things such as a right of notice and how maybe TALUS goes about this.
1: Yeah, so we've done probably uh, 80 deals at Telus Ventures kind of since inception. Uh, And in my time of the last four years, I'm going to say, I don't know, 25. And and so I I can't, I guess, be absolutely certain we've never done one before my time, but certainly since I joined, we've never done a rofer, ever. Hmm. So what we have done is uh, either a rofo, or a RoFi, where you're basically ensconcing a right to be notified, or if the company decides that they want to sell, that you get to make an offer. Now, if I'm either the investment banker that's involved in a process or the entrepreneur in the company that we're backing when we present this term sheet for a rofo. What I always say to them is, guys, think about it from your perspective. It's actually value maximizing because you're able now to go to the market. There's nothing restricting you from going to the market and getting other bids, but you've already got one. You've already got an offer if 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 it's a roll, for example. So how is that detrimental? You're able to go to the market and say, Hey, are you interested in this asset? Yes or no. By the way, we have an existing bid. It has no preferential avenue or rights or treatment or anything. It's just a bid to demonstrate there's interest. And you know, whether you're selling a house or a company, uh expressed interest already is, generally speaking, gonna produce more interest and certainly more alacrity for people to respond. So we we, we long story short, we we haven't found it a problem. Um and I could say we've never even asked for one. Actually maybe that's not true. We asked for a row for once when we wrote a, a fairly good sized check and the company just said no. We said, okay, fine. Can't blame us for trying, but we went, we went back to the Rofo uh, concept.
0: Amazing. Now, I find this to be uh, such an interesting concept, specifically in the case of corporate venture arms, because in the scenario of a, of a corporate venture arm, if that company or that target um, typically sees a potential bidder, it's likely that that bidder is actually a competitor to the corporate and oftentimes you'd want to, um, or just in general, I, I would say that uh, corpus oftentimes will have competitive m as right? Just to kind of avoid the competitor uh, gaining access to those synergies. So in the life cycle of the investment, are there certain um, activities or uh, relationship styles that kind of mitigate the Target or the invested company in wanting to actually be acquired by a company outside of the venture arms parent company?
1: You know, the things that we can do, say, as Telus Ventures, to, you know, preclude or disincent another buyer from wanting to buy that company? Is that what you're asking?
0: Essentially, or more so, what relationship styles or value adds or in what scenarios? oftentimes most deterrent, not in an aggressive way, but actually in a very, uh, respectful and appreciative way where this venture arm has been there for me. And I would actually, um, like to be acquired by this company versus another company for whatever Mm -hmm. reason that that may be.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I can give you a tangible example. So we invested in, um, let's say about two years ago in a company called uh, right health and their product is called Akira. So it's a virtual care uh, solution and it's sold primarily business to business. It's the top kind of B2B uh, virtual care solution in Canada. So we invested in the seed round. It was basically uh, two guys, um, who I had known for years, who had been at MedCan, and I'd known one of them kind of back to his Goldman Sachs days. And, you know, we led the seed round. We uh, ended up owning about 23 24% of the business. Anyway, flash forward kind of a year and a half, and we had helped them make an acquisition. We'd helped them build out a clinic. We'd helped them kind of with a bunch of strategy work. I'm talking we, you know, primarily ventures but also tell us to some extent. And we just built a really good healthy relationship with these guys and the market in virtual care started heating up. Now remember this is pre-COVID. So in the fall of 2019, we decided, you know, with tell us to make an offer for this business. And so there were other folks who were interested. And one of the reasons they kind of went with us, they said, uh, is that they really liked the relationship with my team. And, you know, I was on their board and we had a good kind of chemistry. And so they came aboard and they now run big parts of Telus Health. So I think the best way, you know, to answer your question, the best way to succeed is just to deliver on what we tell the portfolio companies we're going to do, which is we're going to help them navigate Telus Number one, we're going to help them find other customers. We're going to help them on some strategic things like buying this asset that they ended up buying. You know, we're, we're going to be there to help advocate for their interests with other investors. I mean, just down the line, right? And and we did all those things. I'd like to think we have done a good job in most of the companies that we've invested in doing that. And so that relationship at the end of the day, I think helps a lot. And I think value maximization is important, but a lot of entrepreneurs will say, you know what? I want to know that my product, my service, my company, my employees go to a good home. Uh, And if they have a good feeling based on the interactions with Mm. the ventures group, I think that helps a lot.
0: Most definitely. I can definitely see that. Now you, you had mentioned that you were on the board and, um, With the board, there's actually some considerations that, again, I believe are more so specific with corporate than a financial investor in the sense where there could actually be a conflict of interest. So maybe sometimes um, the corporate is actually would prefer to not have a board seat or to be an observer. Could you elaborate more on this in terms of how the parent company sees uh, board seats in target companies?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, the truth is there is a, there's a hard and fast rule in terms of the fiduciary obligation that we fill when we're sitting on a board, is to that company. So when I'm in the boardroom or reviewing board materials or talking to the CEO or VP sales or whomever, I am doing it with nothing but the best interests of that company at heart. And I know sometimes people say, "Well, come on, that, that can't be true," but but it is. <laughs> and secondly, um, you have to do that, and you have to kind of take off the fiduciary hat and put on the the, the the corporate hat, depending on what the situation is. So from the moment we've invested, like I was saying earlier, we're nothing but a relentless advocate for the company, and the board seat is the mechanism. do that effectively if what we want out of the company is just a commercial relationship or to drive their pricing down or you know whatever uh we're not going to invest Like we're investing because we believe in that business and it's commercial opportunity and so the board seat really becomes the fulcrum for the application of the ventures methodology not the corporate methodology. Um, And I would say in every board seat that we have, I could give you dozens of examples where we have gone to TELUS and advocated for something that is better for the company than necessarily for TELUS. Like we're we're almost the agitators internally uh, to push and prod and poke TELUS for the benefit of the portfolio company rather than the reverse.
0: I see, and I could see actually this working very well for uh, innovation within the company as well, right? Steering the company in certain directions that maybe they hadn't had seen prior. And I think this also works uh, very well for in the long term having the actual acquisition. I'm curious to know uh, when you think about acquisition of these um, invested companies, I feel it's really important to have advocates on the inside and I'm curious to know what the process is in terms of um, when you invest in the company, you may like to actually see what their performance is, uh, how well their customers are um, adapting to or are engaging with the product. And then possibly this can lead into advocates on the inside. And I believe every every corporate has their own approach to it. I would love to hear uh, how you think about this.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, track record and traction breeds trust. Um, so to the extent that there's a longer window of insights into what the company said they were gonna do and what they actually did, uh, I think the more it generates you know, a willingness to believe what they say they're gonna do going forward. Now that's true whether you're investing in the business, whether you're partnering with the business, whether you're using it as a customer, I mean, it's true holistically, right? So what I would say is one of the benefits for companies of taking corporate venture capital, in my opinion, is that they then have that advocate who says, hey, listen, guys, you know, no startup hits it 10 out of 10 from the beginning. Every startup journey is, you know, peaks and valleys. But on the whole, these guys are good folks. They've done what they said they were going to do. You know they've pivoted, made the tough decisions when they needed to, they've delivered a product. This is the customer insights outside of TELUS. Because by the way, you don't get that as just a vendor, you know, what does the other customer say? Well they'll tell you, you know, a very, very brief level, they won't give you any nuance. And we're able to kind of give them more of that holistic view and say, you know, on the whole, company and product performance aside, this is a group that we would be lucky to work more closely with. And again, that goes a long way when you're talking about M&A or other things.
0: And now I, I would actually see as a uh, a company as large as Telus, the amount of connections and introductions that can come from this type of relationship is, is massive. And so as a venture that has a similar customer base or strategic goal as Telus, uh, I would see them as being Working with TELUS as a, a very um, high goal of theirs. Now I'm curious to hear how would you suggest a venture build a relationship to gain interest in an investment from a venture arm of a corporate? And at what stage in their development would they start thinking about this?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and we get it a lot, you know, basically the question is should we start with a business relationship or should we start with a ventures relationship? You know, if ultimately our goal is both. Um, And I don't know that I have a perfect answer. I, I think it really depends. And hopefully both roads, you know, are synergistic. So we're certainly able to, because of our jobs and what we do every day, our bandwidth is just bigger to spend time with, you know, startup and growth stage companies than our peers in the business unit. Oftentimes, you know, they're focused on horizon one if you use that kind of framework, right? They've got quarterly targets, you know, they've got cost pressures, certainly in this environment, it's no secret. Everybody's, you know, really battening down the hatches. So our ability to intake, evaluate, you know, reconcile what the company does with what Telus priorities are, I would say we're probably better positioned. So all other things being equal, I would say start with ventures and our recommendations as to which vendors the business unit should pay attention to. You know, I think we've built a pretty good track record of pointing them to things that matter. Um, the issue is sometimes our timelines aren't aligned. Like if I'm being honest, one of the biggest challenges is, yeah, we can do a deal in 60 days, first meeting to check business units don't generally move that fast. So if you're a startup and you're coming in through ventures first, you have to recognize that ventures isn't gonna just phone somebody in the business unit and there's gonna be a trial or a PO tomorrow, it's months if not longer. So you know, with that in mind, if your goal is maybe more business, less investment, then go to the business, come through us first or go to the business directly, work through our incubator partners, Work through our tech strategy groups. Work through our B two B sales teams. Work through you know any number of avenues. And entrepreneurs have to be creative and resourceful as they as they are. Uh, go through those groups, and then you know for the appropriate ones, then we get the referral from our folks inside. Tell us, and then we we do our thing.
0: Very. nice. I don't know if that's a perfect
1: answer, but the truth is, you know, this the, depends. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. There, there is no one route, and that actually spills into the, uh, the next question being again there is no one route right so a venture how prepared and again i know that there is no one route but how prepared should a venture be when making their first pitch to you because for example you could be a venture in a certain scenario where you don't have revenue yet but you've built the product to a point where you know that this product provides a specific benefit to the customer base and that benefit has a direct, um, it connects directly with, let's say the customer base of Telus. So now you can actually approach from the position of we think that this product can upsell your, your current customer base, right? Or you could be in another scenario where, uh, you have revenues, And you're using the revenues as the specific positioning as to why you should uh, gain attention from TELUS. And maybe the venture that doesn't yet have revenue would think that they're crazy for approaching TELUS when they don't yet have revenue. Right. So my question is, at what point or in what scenarios should a, a, a leadership team feel comfortable that they can approach TELUS based on what their current scenario is?
1: Yeah, that's, a, that's another really good question. I mean, we have just this year really formalized a, a seed fund. So we historically tended to focus more on the series A and B. So now we're looking to do more volume, you know, smaller check sizes, call it 250 to a million in seed stage deals. And in those deals, I would say, you know, it doesn't need to be a full-featured, you know, customer-signed uh, business. It can be much more formative, like what you're describing, and where the management team says, "Look, I think the natural customer base is aligned with with Telus." So we're certainly more willing to look at those in, than we were, say, maybe in the past. What I would say though is the team, because the product isn't quite there, the team you know, hopefully is really, really top tier. So proven, been there, done that, you know, credibility, has delivered product to market, has had some, some ideally some financial venture-backed experience. So that's kind of where the emphasis then goes. Uh, uh, for the more mature companies, um, you know, what I usually say is, show us one customer that is, if not our size, at least, uh, uh, you know, robust and significant enough that we can get a sense as to your ability to sell to larger organizations uh, which tells me two things one the product stability is there and two the management team has the sophistication and the kind of orientation to figure out more of these you know ground games that you need to sell to large enterprises
0: very interesting I think that's actually a great note for uh, leadership teams to have in context. Now, given the entire economic landscape at this point in time, going forward, it's really situational, right? In the terms of uh, financial investors, if you were in a situation where you you had not yet really made many investments, you you, you had a lot of dry powder, right? In some, some scenarios, you were in a difficult situation where now you kind of slow down your investments. In terms of a corporate venture arm, how does the economic landscape really impact your, uh, your decisions in investing going forward? And how do you think overall you will approach um, investments going forward?
1: Yeah, you know, the truth is, um, you know, as our CEO says, like the signal for uh, and need for innovation is like break like it is the time I said this previously, but you know, the, the, the time to hit the gas, not the brake. And uh, I love that quote from Jeff Bezos, right. Which is like, you know, the most dangerous thing in business is not to evolve and you've got to evolve at warp speed now uh, as an organization, whether you're big or whether you're small. And so, you know, obviously I'm biased, but I think venture, Investments, venture groups, given their focus on transformation, horizon three, thinking creatively, different approaches. I think those are going to be even more critical to the innovation kind of toolbox for companies. So the signals that we're getting and the direction we're getting from, you know, internally that the CEO uh, and CFO is go faster. You know, wow. invest more. Um, we're putting people on the ground in the Bay Area and Tel Aviv. We're hiring two of our, we have, you know, three open positions on our investment team right now. We're hiring in Toronto and Vancouver, potentially Montreal. You know, we're looking to bring on people that are experienced kind of relationship management folks to help us navigate those business unit relationships. So we're, you know, I mentioned the seed fund that we're doing. We'll be launching a new impact fund in the fall. So we're we're definitely thinking kind of multi-strategy, multi-sector, multi-region. And you know, I haven't mentioned it, but our areas of focus, digital health, IoT, smart cities, digital transformation is huge. All of those areas are are, are rapid growth, tons of opportunities, maturing quickly. And so again, you know, our, our mission is go. You know, go faster, go go bigger, which is exciting, right? I mean, that's kind very, of what you want to hear as a
0: venture guy. Yeah. Very okay, excellent. Actually, that covers the majority of um, of topics that I would have liked to uh, to cover, and I think that this has been an amazing conversation. Uh, thank you so much for the for the time.
1: Yeah, really, really appreciate it, and thanks. Those are really great questions. So, thanks for giving me the opportunity.
0: Most definitely. We'll talk. Bye. Okay.
1: Thanks. Bye okay. bye.
0: Thanks for joining us on the Beehive Capital podcast. We hope this sparked new ideas, aha moments, or raised your spirits during these trying times. All the best, Douglas Obusu and the Beehive Capital team.